When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. TV, comics, movie stars, hit singles and some toys. It's trivia and dirty jokes, an evening with the boys. Once is never good enough for something so fantastic. So here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Here's another Gilbert and Franks. Colossal classic. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a singer, guitarist, recording artist, manager, Grammy-winning record producer, and eyewitness to some of the most important and defining musical events of the last half century. As one half of the British pop duo Peter and Gordon, he scored nine top 20 hits, including I Go to Pieces, Lady Godiver, and the million-selling number one single, World Without Love, penned by his longtime friend, Paul McCartney. After splitting up with partner Gordon Waller in 1968, he went on to scout and develop new talent for the Beatles' Apple Records label, discovering and signing a 20-something songwriter named James Taylor. He produced over a dozen Grammy-winning recordings and worked with artists such as Linda Ronstadt, Neil Diamond, Diana Ross, Elton John, Randy Newman, Ringo Starr, Billy Joel, Bonnie Raitt, and even Steve Martin and Robin Williams, and is responsible for such hits as Fire and Rain, You've Got a Friend, Shower the People, You're No Good, When Will I Be Loved? And it's so easy to just name a few. You want more? He's also a former child actor, a member of Menza, 
And the first person to ever hear I Wanna Hold Your Hand when a young Paul McCartney and John Lennon played it for him in the basement of his mother's house. Wow. Please welcome a man of multiple talents and our first guest to be appointed a commander of the British Empire, the legendary Peter Asher. Wow, what an intro. I should take you with me everywhere. Thank you very much. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a whole opening act. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> now, Thank you. Now, before anything else, yes, sir. your grandfather was Lawrence of Arabia's lawyer? Yes, he was. <laughs> Yeah, wow. he was. He was. He was also an amateur playwright and a musician, but he was a, a solicitor, and w- and one of his clients was uh, Lawrence of Arabia. It is true. Fantastic. And did he go to his office on a camel? No, I don't yeah. think so. <laughs> yes. No, but he did show. My mother met him um, when she was little. Wow, your mother met T. E. Lawrence. My mother met T. E. Lawrence. She was she was around uh, seventeen or so, and she did tell her father how incredibly handsome she thought he was, and. There was a way, and I, she couldn't remember exactly how he told her, but he made it clear that she was, that was not what he was interested in, that an attractive young 18-year-old woman was not what Lawrence was looking for in life. <laughs> and and, and I've, I've always wondered exactly how you explained it back then, because he didn't go, oh, he's gay, that's for sure. Oh! <laughs> but what, what they, but she, she was apparently tactfully informed by her father that not to get her hopes up. In wow. That, in that wow. <laughs> I just keep seeing Peter O'Toole well, in my head. Of course, because we don't, so we, we don't really yes. know the re- real T.E. Lawrence looks like. We could look it up. But most no, he people was handsome. Think, he was he extremely was. handsome. He was handsome. There's, there's photos. He was very handsome and in captain's uniform and everything. But. Right. And, and the other thing is if uh, anyone listening out there looks up the name Peter Asher, early photos, and looks on YouTube for one of his earlier performances... Uh, you are or were Austin Powers. Well, <laughs> no, uh, not really. But 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 what it, what what is apparently the case, and and what Mike Myers has, has confirmed is that there were some photos of me back in that era that 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 definitely informed the look of Austin Powers to a considerable degree because I I did have the bad teeth and the square black glasses that I was copying Buddy Holly and uh, and so on. Uh, there's a thing that. Um, TMZ did where they actually blind up some photos of me and Austin Powers to make the point, which do look remarkably as as they put it, the poor guy really did look like Austin Powers. <laughs> but the, the um, uh, but the, I, the character was not based on me. I think it was based on a DJ called Simon some Simon Day, I think, and yeah. and a few other people. So you know, not that I wasn't shagadelic, I'm sure, but <laughs> you were shagadelic. But, but, uh, but I, I was not the uh, the role model. But I was apparently to some degree the the visual inspiration for the. Look you ever talked to Mike Myers about it? I did once. Yeah. And I mentioned it to him, and he yeah. kind of nodded. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, because no. when I look at yeah. those photos, it's scary. No, it is. It, <laughs> he definitely. There was one particular picture, you know. Where you can really see that they, he kind of went, well, maybe you should have that look, you know. Uh, yes. So yeah. Before we get into anyway, P- Peter and Gordon, I want to talk. You brought your mom up, and I wanted, to, I wanted, I mentioned to Gilbert just before we turn the mics on that your mom. You not only come from a musical family, but your mom was a t- was a teacher. She was in the London Philharmonic. She, she was a professional musician. She played in various orchestras, then the Halle Orchestra for a while, and uh, with first Sir Thomas Beecham, and I'm not sure which other ones. And then she was oboe professor at the Royal Academy of Music in London. Yes, and also taught. 
privately, taught, taught at the academy and gave some private lessons. And did she, did she teach George Martin? Do I have that's, that right? That's one of the strange coincidences. Yeah, wow. The, by, the, by the time I met George Martin in, in a completely other context, he had actually, he went to the Guildhall School of Music where she was a guest professor and he was one of her pupils. Yes, he was an oboe player. And here's a question I always ask people who knew George Martin. Uh, do you think the Beatles could have made it as big as they did without George Martin? Uh, I don't know about as big, but the Beatles would have made it whatever. They were that good. I mean, there is a certain, there is a level of talent that is undeniable and unstoppable in my view that whatever happens, it would have found its, made its mark on the world. Did George help the Beatles records be even better than they would have been otherwise? Absolutely, yes. Do they? Owe, do, do, does does the genius of their records owe George a, a huge debt of gratitude? Absolutely, yes. Is he one of the best record producers in the world? Yes. Would the Beatles have happened without him? Probably yes. But it might have been different. You know, it's it's hard to say. You know. Yeah. But, but in the same way, people have asked me the, the, that question about James Taylor. You know, what, what, what would he have made it? If, and the answer is yes, absolutely. You know. So it's 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 not. Well, you certainly helped. But I helped. Exactly. (laughs) I was proud to help. But I mean, I was just amazed when I heard him and went, you know, this is you're colossally good. You know, this is insane. Um, You know, it's you you actually get to the point where you can't believe nobody else has gone. This guy's brilliant and signed him up and made a record. I would just happen to be there first. And George was the first person to to hear how good the Beatles were and, and, and recognize it. I love that George also worked with comedians, that he, that he worked with the goons. Absolutely. He had that well, other that's, background. That's one of the things that recommended him to them and to me. I mean, when we, the reason we all knew George Martin was cool wasn't the music records he'd made thus far. Yeah. It was the fact that he produced Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers, which, who were our heroes. Sure. I saw an interview goons. with you and you said it all comes back to Spike Milligan. It does. Which, Every, <laughs> which I love. British humor entirely goes back to Spike Milligan. Okay. And, he, and he's not that well known here, but he's, of course, a hero to all of us, to, to Monty Python and to every, all of the comedians course. who came after and the and Beatles tell too. us and how, the Beatles. tell us how you made the connection with Paul McCartney oh well that that that's I can't take the credit for that but what happened was my sister you know was and is a, a, a successful actress in in England and um, Jane Asher Jane Asher and she was she was kind of a celebrity and, and still is and 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 it was in that context i think that she was invited to go and see this band it was the radio times who invited it which is a, a um kind of like our tv guide except we didn't really need a tv guide because we only had one television station which was the, <laughs> which was the, B, the bbc which was only on a night and but anyway so this was for radio programs and they were doing an article on the beatles and they asked her to go and see them and kind of do a review so she went to see them uh uh in london and met them after the show you know, she thought the band was incredibly good. She met them afterwards, thought they were funny and, and cute and charming and everything. And she liked them, they liked her. One of them liked her in particular and asked her out and so on. So she ended up going out with Paul McCartney for for, for a few years. And and it was in that context that, that I met him. And because uh, shortly after that, it, you know, one of the functions of that relationship was that he was hanging around our house all the time. And eventually our parents kind of took pity on, on him and offered him the guest room and, top of the house when they weren't out on the road and so he moved in and he and I shared the top floor of the house and then and that you know we ended up becoming friends and and one time he invited you to listen to a song he wrote yes there was a, in the basement of the house there was a small music room where my mother would give private oboe lessons occasionally but not very often so she had said to Paul if you ever need to use a piano because he plays piano very well he's one of those people who can play everything very well and and um she said, if you need a piano, use the one in the basement music room. So 
it, John came over one day, quite soon after he'd moved in. This was early on. And they were down there for a couple of hours, interestingly, with no guitars. The guitars were up in his bedroom and my bedroom on the top floor. And they were down there for a couple of hours. There was a small upright piano and a little sofa and a music stand. It was a tiny room. And and then Paul called up the stairs and asked if I wanted to come down and hear the song that they had written. So I came down and sat on the little sofa and they sat side by side on the piano bench and played uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand for the first time. That, that fresh, does, freshly minted. Wow. And asked, me, and asked me what I thought. So you were like the first person in the world to hear I Want to Hold Your Hand. He was. Other than the composers, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you have an ability at that at that tender age to recognize a hit song? Oh, think, yeah. I think we all would have. I mean, it, you, you kind of go, am I losing my mind or is this one of the best songs I've ever heard in my life? And, of course, what you really do, which is what I did, is ask them to play it again. And they did. Because that's what makes, you know, we all know. It's like when you used to buy 45s and the minute... The needle got to the big old fat grooves in the middle. Sure. You'd yank it back to the beginning oh. because that's the great thing about a hit record. You just want to hear it again and again. I miss those days. Yeah. Didn't he also write yesterday in the house and you weren't you weren't home at the time? That's right. Yeah. He did. I think my mom was the first person to hear that. But wow. you, you probably know the story, but he woke up with the melody completely yes. formed in his head yes. and was convinced it was an existing song. He wasn't going around saying, listen to this song I've written. He, he was going around saying, what is this? You know, um, he sang it to my mom and to various people saying, you know, this must be something. It's this melody stuck in my head. And eventually, by process of elimination, he realized he'd written it inadvertently. And did, did he originally call it Scrambled Eggs? It originally had no lyrics. And then they were looking at some point, as I say, I wasn't there, so I didn't witness this. But at some point during that day, the temporary lyrics that he was looking for a da-da-da. You know, and the first da 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 that apparently came to mind was scrambled eggs. So at one point, it was something about scrambled eggs, how I love your legs or something. Yeah, but <laughs> it's fascinating. His but his initial reaction was someone must have written this. This must. Yes. Have, this must. It, have, it's exist. the only tune apparently where wow that where he woke up with it completely done uh, as a melody. I love and, that. And but I mean nobody knows really, really where songs come from. That people tend to get a bit mystical about it. But. Um, that that was an extreme case to wake up with one of the best songs ever written, pre-written, without having to make any effort. <laughs> of course, we should all be so lucky. Oh, what an ability! And and you're a member of Mensa. Uh, it's true. Well, I took the test. <laughs> we I don't go in any order here, I, Peter, I, as I, you can see. <laughs> I, I, I took the test a very long time ago, so at least they don't make you retake it. You know, there's no oh, there's oh. no readmission qualification. I, I'm sure in 150 I, guests, we've never had a Mensa member in here I before. I wonder. I probably did it. When, you know, I probably took it when I was about 16. So, you know, and I've, but I've worked on my brain cells pretty vigorously since then. So, who, so who knows what's left? <laughs> you know, but luckily, they don't make you recheck your IQ. Gil, you're not in Mensa. Uh, no, no, it's so political. <laughs> but also, I do like those kind of logic things. I mean, I read, right. I was did read philosophy at university, and that kind of, so I do like I like maths and logic and stuff. Before we get into British Invasion, and they and, wouldn't let me near the building. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you were banned. Before we get into Peter and but Gordon, I've been to a couple of meetings, and they're pretty weird. Really, I, I've been to like two in my whole life. Now, are the just people, out of curiosity, are a lot of the people in Mensa a little bit on the crazy side? Yes. Like the, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's so, interesting. So in what way? What are, are they just like out there? Like they can't? No, just it's a, just a bunch of people. But you know, I I, I'm not sure what you what I don't really know what it's for or what you'd expect. You know, they're all going to get together and solve the world's problems mm. in ten minutes over dinner. <laughs> but but no, it's it, it's a, you know IQ as we all know measures a particular kind of thinking ability. Sure. It may or may not be any use. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. 
Bum, 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 Now back to Gilbert and Frank. It's them that you soon will thank. Gilbert found this interesting, too. We want to get into the British invasion, too. There's so much to cover with someone like you, Peter. But also, you were a child actor. I was. You worked with one of Gilbert's favorites, Alistair Sim. I did. We were in a film called Escapade together. Fascinating. Um, yeah, it was, it was a good film, actually. I saw it not long ago. They, they had a revival of it in L.A. They were talking about some particular period of British filmmaking. I can't remember what they called it. And some film research body was doing the screening and they figured out I was not dead and you know I was the only person in the film left you know so they said right. will you come and talk about making the movie I said yeah of course and, and you worked with Claudette Colbert I did Claudette Colbert played my mother um wow. I got a great picture of me kissing Claudette Colbert very vigorously How about that Gil <laughs> <laughs> it happened one night and you worked with this actor Jack Hawkins yes sure he was my he was my father in the same film that Claudette Colbert played my mother we were in the outposts of Malaya fighting the commies on behalf of the British Empire in the this. film, we won. In real life, not so much. I was just saying, like, years ago, I was watching a talk show, and Jack Hawkins had just had his vocal cords yes. removed. Yes, he did quite a few films after that. I mean, even with some lines that he would do with the, you know, buzzy thing, which it, they're getting better anyway. But And, and I, I, it seemed like he, he was talking about it, and the way some people burp the alphabet... Yes. He would burp the words. Yes, yes, that's what... Yeah, there's two ways they do it. Either they swallow the air and kind of talk to, over, the, over the burp or they use those buzzy things like electric razors. On. And they, and uh, he would, he got really good at it and could actually... You know, he was actually in a couple of films where he had short lines and he would get away with it. I'm just curious about He was a you, terrific actor and a very terrific nice Terrific actor, Jack yeah. Hawkins, yeah. And then I did a film with Cecil Parker. I don't know if you remember. Oh, a lot of, one of my favorite act, British mm, actors. I don't know that name. Oh, look him up. You'll okay, know him. Okay, Cecil every, Parker. He's in everything. I know Cecil Kellaway. Uh, no. <laughs> look, up, look, up, <laughs> look up Cecil Parker. Okay. He's in everything. Okay. Um, was, How did you and terrific. Jane get into acting in the first place? I mean, your dad was a physician. Your I mom know. was a musician. It's odd. I, I The stories I'm told, I can't really remember, but um, apparently some agent or somebody spotted the three of us. My, I've got two sisters, Jane, right, Jane and right. Claire. We all have red hair, so it was like, and we were all graded by height and looked evidently, you know, cute or whatever. And so somebody said, oh, you know, you make some money out of those kids. You know, <laughs> or, or Get something. them working. And, and anyway, so and some agent expressed interest, and we went, yeah, sure, you know, and, and um, we never did it, do anything, all three of us together. Jane and I did do one thing together, because I did a number of the old Robin Hood series, if oh, you remember right. that, with Richard Green um, and uh, the black and white, which is a very interesting story, by the way. That's another thing we could talk about for hours. But it was, it was all created by blacklist Americans who'd gone to England to find work. Hannah Weinstein um, put the thing together. It was the first first episodic TV ever made in, in Britain. She would do a show a week. For blacklisted writers who had to go overseas. largely blacklisted writers that's that went overseas. Anyway. Um, I was Prince Arthur in a number of those episodes. But then later, after Prince Arthur had disappeared for a while, I came back as a peasant child with Jane as my sister. We were two peasant children trying to free their oppressed father from the clutches of the sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, that's the only thing we ever did together. But you can you can find it. It exists. I didn't know it was... I know the series, but I didn't know there were blacklisted American writers behind yeah. it. Hannah Weinstein's the producer, and I don't think she's related to the Weinsteins as we know them, but she was a right. blacklisted... Um, 
producer, a left-wing Jewish producer from L.A. who'd gone to London to work. How about that, Gil? Wow. Along with a lot of cool writers who went there, too. So all of them, the whole crew was basically blacklisted. No, the, the crew probably no, not was. The I crew, mean, I'm sure the union crew the had to be English, creators, but, but I think the creators, as I understand writers. It, certainly Hannah Weinstein who's the, was the key figure, and they used some blacklisted writers as well to write episodes. i got to dig into that. Yeah. So how did music, you, you're always musical, it was a musical family, but you obviously decided at some point not acting. Um, well, gonna... it, yes, I'd like to think I made that decision, but it could be that the acting community made that decision. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll give you credit for it. Um, no, I mean, by the time I got to school, see, Jane uh, quit school when she was about 15. She, she, she knew acting was for her and she didn't need school. And she, you know, um, So, but I went to Westminster, which is a serious... But you know what in England we call a public school, which isn't really public at all, expensive and hard to get into, and it was a very serious school. It's in the middle, founded by Queen Elizabeth I and all that stuff, and so they would never give you time off to go and be in a film or anything. So it, so between that and the fact that I probably wasn't getting as much work as I was, I just started taking school seriously, and I could combine school and music, but not school and acting. And and at the risk of getting the wrath of Beatles fans the world over. You introduced John Lennon to Yoko Ono. I, I, I was responsible for that meeting. I Yes, uh, I started an, a bookshop and an art gallery with some friends. Um, two friends of mine, Barry Miles and John Dunbar. And Miles ran the bookshop, John ran the, art, ran the art gallery, and I was the third partner and also put some of the, the, the money I thought I was making in pop music, turned out it wasn't really, but that's another story, <laughs> um, into the bookshop and the art gallery called Indica. Named, of course, after the plant, cannabis indica, maybe some botanists. And oh, all wow. all and, <laughs> that tells us a lot. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, we, yeah, we were trying to be like the City Lights bookshop or something. It was, you know, it, it was effective. We, you know, William Burroughs came over and did a reading. Ginsburg did a reading yeah. there. It became the Saw that the, in the research. The spot. Um, and then we opened this art gallery, and, and John had heard about this Japanese-American artist who we thought sounded wacky enough to be in our cool avant-garde gallery. So... John got hold of her and asked if she'd come and do an exhibition. She said yes. We took an ad in the paper and she came over and the, everything. And the the way these things work, you'd have an opening night for the press and everything with wine and cheese or whatever. And But we sometimes had a, a pre-press opening that we would invite friends to. And they, by this point, the Beatles were amongst my friends. So we invited everybody and, and one of them came and that was John. So that, that's where he and Yoko met. And And a lot of people have this very easy answer that it was Yoko who split up the Beatles. What's... No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, they were arguing about a lot of different things. And, you know, I think, yes, yeah, some of them got annoyed about Yoko. But they, in, in the end, it was Alan Klein that they were arguing about. You know, when they they agreed that they wanted some serious businessman to come in and, and rethink the whole thing. Because by then, it had expanded into numerous areas beyond music. Apple Records was one thing. But it was films and electronics and clothes and this that. And it was going a bit nuts. They just couldn't agree on who that person should be. And John was determined that it should be Alan Klein. And uh, I think he was mistaken. I knew about Alan from New York, and I knew him essentially to be kind of a crook, you know. And and um, Turned out to be true. Turned out to be true. <laughs> and, and, and so Paul was vehemently against Alan. John, Alan Klein somehow talked John into it the way these people do. Maybe he told John he was going to make Apple great again or something. I don't know. Whatever it took. But whatever, however these crooks talk us into <laughs> electing them. But um, it, um, 
it it didn't work, you know. And anyway, that was what I think. If if, if one thing brought Paul and John to a, to a to a point of de- departure from each other, that was it. And you were at a, at Apple then, so you were in the, you were Apple, in the middle of some of those the minute, arguments. The minute they chose Klein, um, I resigned. Right. So I by by the time John arrived, I had left. And took James Taylor with you. By the time Alan, by the time Alan arrived, sorry, I and, I had left. And the relationship between Yoko and John, what did that? How did that, your opinion? I wasn't there that much of the time. I mean, it was very close. He, he looked, he valued her opinion on everything. And she's a very smart woman. She's an eccentric woman, but a brilliant woman. And, and uh, I think the Beatles were just, it was, it was new to them because the rest of them had, you know, wives or girlfriends that would leave and go to work. And Yoko was part of John's life, partnership in, sure. in every, in everything. And I think they found that disconcerting, but I mean, no, she and John loved each other very dearly, no question about that. But I wasn't there enough to comment beyond that. Let's talk about Peter and Gordon and sure. meeting Gordon. You met Gordon at Westminster met School? Met Gordon at school, yes. We were, I mean, essentially, we were both, you know, we were the only people we ran into who also played the guitar. By this time, I'd got a guitar. I'd, I'd played various instruments badly. I'd never kept up with my piano lessons or anything musically. Both my sisters are much better musically than I am. They both read music much better than I do, which is probably why I'm the only one making a living in the music business. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> ironic. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so, uh, but eventually I got a guitar and I had a skiffle group like we all did. That's all other programs. Lonnie Donegan. The skiffle movement, yeah, exactly. Right. Lonnie Donegan was great. We talked to Billy J. Kramer about that very thing. Yeah, he was such a big deal. Yeah. And most Americans don't get it. Jack White is a huge Lonnie Donegan fan. There are a few out, outposts of Lonnie Donegan fandom. What was in, the song? The does, does your chewing gum? Well, the, the big, the good one was Rock Island Live. Rock Island, right, right. And the bad one was the right. chewing Right, that was the novelty one that, that we got in the States. Lose its flavor. Well, no, Rock Island Live was number one. What? Yeah. Which is a lead belly song. And uh, and then Does Your Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavor on the Bedpost Overnight was also, sadly. I guess I was a child, so that's the one that I remember. Right. Um, so Gordon played the guitar and sang as well. And so we tried doing it together just really because we were there, you know. And uh, it sounded okay. We, we'd work up some songs. And he was a bit more of a rock and roller. He was a big Eddie Cochran fan, big Elvis fan. You were more the folky. He was a bit more folky. And we were sort of a folky-ish duo. But but where we where we... Our taste totally overlapped was the Everly Brothers, like all duos throughout history. Right, right. Whether it's Simon and Garfunkel or John and Paul or us, the Everly Brothers were our, were our inspiration. Everybody wanted to be the Everly Brothers. Everybody wanted said. to be and the Everly Brothers. And you, we did. Yeah. You were both big fans of American pop music. Yep, for sure. I mean, the again, this is a big subject because it goes beyond pop music. What you got to understand is we were big fans of America. I mean, when we grew up in, you know, People often ask me why the 60s were special in England and why it was different. And the answer is in the 50s, because the 50s in Britain and America could not have been more different. 50s in England were black and white, bomb sites, depressing. We still had rationing until 1956, you know. And and we'd look across the Atlantic and there was this miraculous land. As well, you know, if we were black and white, they were technicolor and glossy and perfect teeth and huge refrigerators full of exotic foods and <laughs> these silly cars with giant fins on them. And You had a poster of the New York skyline, I did. You? I had yeah. a poster of the New York skyline on my wall. I had copies of Downbeat with the jazz clubs I'd go to the minute I got to New York. I knew I would. You couldn't somehow. wait to go. I didn't know how. And going back and forth then was a very big deal. Now people go for a week's holiday in Florida like there's nothing to it. It's cheap tickets and then it was a very big very expensive deal and on top of all that you know america we could see was taking over this whole british empire thing was you know which was people were still on about in england it was clearly 
not happening anymore. You know, it was clear that we, to all of us that that was yesterday and tomorrow was America. And, and on top of that, to clinch it, all these American cities that we knew about from movies and television, New York and L.A. and New Orleans, and they all had amazing music which we loved, you know. So we, we were obsessed with American music. So it wasn't just the Everleys. You were listening to Little Richard. Oh, no. You were listening to Fats Domino. You were listening to Absolutely. anything and you can get your hands on. Of course. And we all were. And, I mean, the Beatles were a cover band. Of course. You know, that's how they began. They were doing all American songs. I used to go and see, the, you know, R&B was huge. I used to go and see the Rolling Stones every Monday night. They were playing at a place called Studio 51, which was a R&B night on Mondays. It was Ken Collier's Jazz Club the rest of the week. And, and they... You know, they were playing all, you know, in that case, it would be like Bo Diddley and Willie Dixon and Muddy Waters. and But nobody was playing their own songs. It was all a tribute to American music. Right. And so Peter and Gordon, when you guys formed, that that winds up becoming your ticket to we America. Did a, we did a bunch of R&B stuff and we did folk stuff and we did Everly stuff. Yes, exactly. Right. And that's what got us signed. You know, we were, we were spotted in playing in a club by right. an A and R guy and signed up. And, and they were, you said in an interview that everybody would confuse every single one of the English groups and duos together. Well, you guys were well, confused with Chad and Jeremy. Duos, yeah. particularly. Chad and Jeremy, <laughs> yeah. which was kind of weird, really. Um, <laughs> we knew each other, you know. And yeah. they, we actually took over one gig from them. They were playing one bar, and they were leaving to go play somewhere else uh, as a residency. And they, the bar asked them if they could recommend someone else, and they recommended us. So we, we helped each other out. But it was kind of odd because the two duos, in both cases, the tall, handsome one sang the low part, the short, nerdy one with glasses sang the high part. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, so, I mean, it was. And, and what would happen is they did things that we didn't do. They did like the Paddy Duke show. They were on oh, Batman. Oh, sure. Because the Dick Van Dyke show. And the Dick Van Dyke show. Right. And people would congratulate us. But we, but they were never on Ed Sullivan and we were. So, uh, um, That's great. But so what happened is, you know, we would do it Sullivan. They people would congratulate them, and you kind of go. You know, and it, that it's, that was the one where they had, they uh, they had so many mobs of people chasing them, and they had oh. to stay with the Petri. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Oh, that's it. Yes. Yeah, no. yes. And they were playing another myth, mythical English duo with different names. I believe so. Like Rodney <laughs> and they weren't even Chad and Jeremy, <laughs> yeah, which makes no sense. Exactly. At all, looking back. Well, Jeremy's still a very successful actor. Yes. Um, he's in a play in London. Yeah, we were talking successful. to Billy Jay about. As it. is Jane, by the way. She's my sister's in the uh, London version of An American in Paris. Oh, cool. Which is great. With the original guy from here, you know, the lead guy, whatever his name is. His name is escaping. Amazing and brilliant. And Jane plays Madame somebody or other. And after those years of the New York skyline, tell us what the experience was when you finally got to New York. It was brilliant. I mean, it was astounding. Uh, one of our first gigs was playing the, the World's Fair. The, the What's the Sphere thing called? Oh, the Unisphere. Unisphere. You played World the 64 Keeping, World's Fair? We did. That's cool. Um, that was one of our very first gigs. And well, first of all, just arriving in New York, and the fact we knew what, exactly what it was going to look like, and it did, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it really looked lived, like the Lived up to expectation. And, and then, of course, to arrive and be chased around the city by teenage girls trying to tear your clothes off can only improve the experience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the only way to travel. I recommend it highly. Should the opportunity ever come your way. We wouldn't know. And, <laughs> and we played... Playing the Unisphere, they had a sort of a moat thing filled with water between between us and the audience. And, of course, the minute we came on, they all jumped in the water and swam across, so it was like a wet T-shirt contest. Wonderful. It was, it was, 
So it was all very exciting. So you enjoyed your career over the years. I did. I enjoyed every moment. You lived, of it. You lived every minute of the British I, invasion experience fantasy out. Absolutely. That's yes. great. Well, so I, I continue ahead. to enjoy it, by the way. So how did World Without Love happen? That that was obviously a game changer. It was. Well, what had happened was, you know, we got signed up by by this guy Norman Newell, uh, who I think was thinking of as a kind of a folk duo. I think we were kind of like. Britain's answer to the Kingston trio, the Kingston duo, as it were. Interesting. Peter and Paul without Mary. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah. so, because that's, it was a song, we, we did a version of 500 Miles that he particularly right. liked and so on. So he said, they, they, we auditioned, they signed us, but they said, we're doing 500 Miles, we're doing this, we're doing that. I'm going to go look for a couple of songs, but if you know any other songs, you know, you'd like to put on the list, let me know. Now, cut to a few months before that, I'd heard this song, Well Without Love, that Paul had written. And I said, that's a really good song. And he said, yeah, but I'm putting it aside. We're not fin- I'm not finishing it. We're not going to do it. It's, um, John doesn't think much of it, and you know, I'm, I'm abandoning it for now. And uh, apparently John really didn't like it. And I, I've read later, I didn't witness this, but I've read later that John would actually interrupt Paul when Paul would start to try and sell him the song because the first line is, please lock me away. And John would go, okay, I will. The song's over. <laughs> and and uh, so anyway, so when Norman said, do you know any other songs, I kind of went, Maybe I do. And I went back to Paul at home that, that very evening and said, is that song, Well Without Love, still an orphan? And he said, yes, we're not doing it. I said, well, can we try and work up a harmony version of it because it's pretty cool. And um, he said, yes, happily. So by this time it had only it had the two verses but no bridge. So he wrote out the, the two verses for me on a piece of paper, which you better believe is safely locked in my safe. I saw so, that you still have that. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> but the minute the music business collapses completely, I can run to Sotheby's as fast as my legs, <laughs> I would. As fast as my legs can carry me. I would. Um, but anyway, and he, he made a demo on my reel-to-reel tape machine. And uh, then before the session came around, I had to nag him a little bit to write the bridge. The, so I wait, and in a while, bit... Um, which he did, and it went on the list, and we recorded it that very first day. And by the end of the session, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that was going to be our single. We weren't folkies. We were going to be pop stars. And and it came out only a month later and went to number one in the UK, number one in all over Europe, and eventually, to our disbelief and incredulity, number one in America. In fact, it was the first British invasion number one in America after the Beatles. We After I Want to Hold Your Hand stopped being number one, we went up there, which is insanely... Great. The, the only snag for me was by that time I'd left Westminster. Gordon was still there because he's a year younger. I was at university doing philosophy. And in England, you know, they don't let you leave and come back. We don't have these mysterious credits that you have over here. Right. We, you're supposed to just start, you know, get your degree. And so I had to go and meet with the head of the philosophy department and explain this problem. And finally, I convinced him this was a completely unique opportunity, and he gave me a one-year leave of absence to, oh, go nice. and, to go and get all this rock and roll nonsense out of my system and come back and get my degree. And tragically, of course, I have to admit to my shame that I'm still on that one year's leave of absence. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you had bigger fish to fry. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> now, yes, exactly. I just I, have to absorb certain things here. <laughs> You're the first human being to hear I Want to Hold Your Hand... And you have songs being just handed over to you by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. It's true. Um, it's true. It was a leftover song. But what's interesting is when they because people go, well, "How did you get all those other songs?" And we didn't do any getting at all. They they took songwriting seriously. I mean, if you read any interviews with the Beatles back then, one of the questions we all got asked is, "What are you going to do when this is all over?" 
because the assumption was confident assumption that two years was the max for a pop career. And they would always say, we will be songwriters because they didn't just want to be Eddie Cochran and Elvis and Buddy Holly. They wanted to be Lieber and Stola. Oh, and Bacharach and, and David. Bacharach and David. Wow. Pomus and Schumann. Sure. They, they knew that. They looked upon it as the sort of a separate career. And and songwriters, I mean, if you have a big hit single, you make damn sure you write the follow-up. You don't want somebody else cashing in on, you know, on your success. So when we came back from our first trip to America promoting Well Without Love, the second single, Nobody I Know, was written with a bridge, you know, <laughs> waiting, for you. <laughs> waiting for us. So so we didn't have to do any begging. You know, that's what songwriters do. They 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 give you the songs you need. What's the moment like, and there, there are only so, so many people on the planet that could answer this question, the moment that you find out that you have the number one record in, in, it's, the, in the country? Uh, well, it's insane. And, and, and number one in England was insane. Number one in America meant more to us. And it, it's the same when the Beatles got the same phone call six months earlier or whatever it was, that I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one, because they knew they would get to go there, and that's what we knew. Uh-huh. And it, was, it meant we were going it to It was America. a phone call? The news came to you in a phone yes. call? Came to yeah. in a phone call. And, you know, um, that was like the irrevocable proof that we were going to get to go to this land that we that we dreamed of going to. And and we did. You know, it, it's funny to think, because you told us about how the English had this dream world view of America. And when the English invasion was starting, America looked at, Everyone coming from there thinking, oh, this is the hip spot. I know. Isn't that weird? And, you know, as I say, that's what people ask. Is why, was, why were the 60s so cool? And it, is, it was a reaction. You know, it was a reaction to the bleakness of the 50s. Because, you know, the, they, everyone tried. They crowned a new queen and said it's a new Elizabethan age and blah, blah, blah. But eventually it wasn't until the young people kind of went, we're going to screw all this. You know, everyone in the 50s tried to dress like a grown-up. You know, that you tried to look older than you were. And suddenly everyone went, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to wear a suit like my dad. I'm going to wear these absurdly silly clothes and velvet and flowers and bell bottoms. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and it changed everything. And, and then America fell in love with it. I mean, America was doing it too with the whole hippie thing. But sure. there was something radical that happened in England, which was a distinct reaction to the bleakness of the 50s. And there was a reaction to the 50s in America too because they were a bit conventional and oh, certainly. sturdy, but but they weren't miserable like they were in England, you know. Will you, do you want to, uh, do you feel, are you feeling brave, Peter? <laughs> I, I'm, I, I, since we're talking about World Without Love, <laughs> yes. and he's been excited about this, he yes. sang uh, Wichita Lineman with Jimmy. And Jimmy's, I, Jimmy's, so I'm told, I didn't consult with Jimmy before I came <laughs> You up. should have. I, I probably should have. Perhaps you should have. <laughs> Jimmy is a good friend and I'm a huge fan. He's the best. But, uh, and uh, yeah, that's one thing I failed to do is go, should I let him sing with me? <laughs> <laughs> well, we always ask. All right. Because... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to carry you mm-hmm. through this. Yes, he's gotta, he's exactly. Don't okay. worry. We'll do it. Okay, you follow Gil. the script and I'll join you on Follow somewhere. his okay. lead. Okay. Okay, <laughs> okay. Here we go. Please lock me away and don't allow the day here inside. Where I hide with my loneliness I don't care what they say I won't stay in a world without love Birds sing out of tune And rain clouds hide the moon I'm okay, here I'll stay With my loneliness 
I don't care what they say, I won't stay in a world without love. So I wait, and in a while, I will see my true love smile. She may come, I know not when. When she does, I'm moved. So baby, until then, lock me away. And don't allow the day here inside where I hide with my loneliness. I don't care what they say. I won't live in a world without love. Second bridge, second Gilbert. So I wait, and in a while, I will see my true love smile. She may come, I know not when. When she does, I lose. So baby, until then, lock me away. And don't allow the day here inside where I hide with my loneliness. I don't care what they say. I won't stay in a world without love. One repeat. I don't care what they say. I won't stay in a world without love. And an instrumental. Who needs Gordon? Brilliant. Peter and Gilbert, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. That was fun. Birds are not the only ones singing out of tune. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And the interesting thing is, there's these weird lyrics floating around, which, when she does, I lose, which came from God knows where. It's on the web in places, but it's wrong. So when she does, I'll know. Oh, wow. I apologize for that. No, it's quite all right. But every now and then you look up the lyrics and they says lose. But if you listen, we're definitely saying no. And he wrote no. I'm strange. I have the handwritten manuscript to prove it. When she does, I'll know. So, but when she does, I'll right. lose. Right. That's kind of insulting. I, I sh- no, yes. I when she finally known. turns up, you go, uh-oh. I'll start proofreading <laughs> the lyrics going forward. Here, here's another thing I like about Paul living in your house. Is yes. Your dad had arranged for a, a, an escape route for him. Yeah. He, my father <laughs> found a way over, over into a neighbor's house <laughs> on the roofs so that... Um, Paul could escape because, of course, it became known eventually that he was there. The weirdest part, of course, must have been for, you know, because it, my house was in Wimpole Street, you know, which is that whole Wimpole Street, Harley Street medical zone. So my father saw patients there, too. It was his consulting rooms as well as our house. So he would have patients come and there'd be like a crowd of girls on the doorstep. And we never explained. completely bewildered. There's the only doctor in England with groupies, you know. Right? <laughs> now, a strange thing in your life that Brings me, reminds me of a movie that I saw. What's that? Oh, you were the best man at the wedding for Marianne Faithful. I was, I was, yes. Now, Marianne Faithful did a strange movie. Girl on a Motorcycle? No, Uh, no, I think it was Irina Palm. Ah, Okay. Where, where she's a grandmother. Oh, this was more recently. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Not, not young, beautiful Marianne. Oh, uh, no, no. Old, this is old, the cool old Marianne. Yes, okay. yes. <laughs> she's great. I love Marianne. Anyway, no, I don't remember that. I haven't seen it. She's a grandmother who's retired and, you know, struggling for money and yeah. has a, a handicapped son. 
and the movie is how she just falls into a job where she, <laughs> where guys go to a place, put their dicks through a hole in the wall, and Marianne Faithful on the other side jerks them off. Where and on this earth is, did you see this? This is a movie. It, <laughs> it's actually not a bad film. Well, there you go. I wasn't aware of that. That's a showstopper. No, that's, it, that's very it, good, it, yes. And it wasn't like a sex comedy or anything. How strange. Like very serious. Stuff. I have to research that. Yes, yeah. and I, I have not seen it. I, I could bring it out with Marianne, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't. <laughs> but, uh, Maybe I wouldn't. Tell us about part of the, the experiences you, you just mentioned, playing the Sullivan Show. And what was that like? It was great. I mean, it was... Uh, it was I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story, though. Um, the reason we weren't on the Sullivan Show when we first got here was um, indirectly Alan Klein again. Uh-oh. And, and I'll tell you why. Not being evil, but actually being clever. He had set up a system whereby the the when the all the new English singles came out, he would have them shipped immediately that week, the, the, the new re- hot releases, straight over to New York. And occasionally he would cover them at, on his label, Cameo Parkway. And Bobby Rydell... Did a cover uh, of World yes. Without Love the minute it did come out in the UK before ours came out in America. He put his out, went in the charts. And and then when ours came out, it, we luckily knocked him out of the charts. And ours went, became the hit. But meanwhile, when we got here and our agent tried to get us on Ed Sullivan, they were going fine. But then they said, we're going to sing World Without Love. He went, no, no, you can't do that. Bobby did that song last week. So Oh, bad timing. Because he was a regular on the Sullivan show. Right. So we didn't get on Sullivan till later when we with another McCartney song called "I Don't Want to See You Again." Right, but that was that was why we weren't on. Was that what, what was Ed like to to? Uh, I, you didn't meet him, Mister Sullivan. Mean, it was Mister Sullivan, and you didn't really meet him. But what they did tell you when you finish and bow, look over at Mister Sullivan, <clears throat> and if he puts his arm out, you walk over and shake his hand. But if he doesn't, you don't. But he did, of course. Or I wouldn't be telling the story. From England, the two London youngsters who met while they were attending Westminster School and developed into top flight stars. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter and Gordon. I don't want to see you again. I hear love is planned. How can I understand when someone says to me, I don't want to see you again Why I cry at night Something wrong could be right I hear you say to me I don't want to see you again As you turned your back on me You hid the light of day I didn't have to play Says to me, I don't want to see you again. I don't want to see you again. I don't want to see you again. 
I'll tell you one person that was a bit of a surprise was when our agent got all excited when they said that, that they'd got us on the Jackie Gleason show. And, and um, we'd never heard of him. Because we <laughs> I love that <laughs> we, we didn't we didn't get we got very few Ameri- we got Sergeant Bilko that was about the only okay. American TV we got we got we loved Phil Silvers we didn't get the honeymooners so we had no idea and everyone's going oh Jackie will Jackie Gleason this is amazing you know uh, so cool you're on his show so we were quite excited it was this legendary guy so we went this is when he had a variety show in down in Miami sure after the honeymooners but yeah. they would do a bit Jackie of honey- Gleason show they did a bit of honeymooners in the middle that's line. right. So we went down there, you know, and walk on the set, and there's this obnoxious, drunken asshole of a man <laughs> <laughs> being being really horrible to everyone. Not to us. He didn't even speak to us. But uh-huh. the crew, the cast, it was we were kind of like, this guy's a complete shit, you know. And and that of course was the immortal Jackie Lee. Oh no, since, the great one. Since then, I what. The honeymooners learned it all by heart. I recognized he was a complete genius and had every right to be as assholeish as he wished. But he certainly was using that right to the fullest on Amazing. this particular occasion. <laughs> <laughs> but then we did Red Skelton, and he, on the other hand, was not drunk and not unpleasant at all. He was very nice. Did you do Milty's show too? No, we never did. Oh, okay. Not sure. Oh, Red's- that saves the question. Red Skelton. You know, the internet cannot be trusted in certain respects. Well, they maybe have we you, did do. They have maybe you guys playing the Burl show. Maybe we did. Yeah. We did a few... I don't remember meeting him, but I know... I don't remember. Maybe we did. All right. Who knows? So Peter and Gordon... If it's on the internet, it must be true. <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> this must be true. I also want to ask you about one other hit. I want yeah. to ask you about I Go to Pieces, written by the great Dale Shannon. Dale Shannon, yes. Yeah. Uh, what was what was he like? I mean, it's he a, was great. a great talent who came to a set. Very nice. I mean, that was another one we sort of picked up off the floor in a way because we were on tour with, with The Searchers, another great English band, sure. and Dale Shannon. And... And he'd written this song that he thought would be right for the searchers. And inexplicably, and to my mind mistakenly, they turned it down. They they said, thank you very much. I don't think it's right for us. They actually could have made a good record of it. But we'd overheard it and kind of went, oh, well, if they're not doing it, <laughs> can we have yeah. it? And, uh, and he, we worked out a version and said, look, you know, hold that song. We'll cut it as soon as we get back to England. And we did. Great track. And so you, you, when uh, Peter and Gordon finally split up in 68, yeah. you, you decide to go in different directions? Well, we did, the interesting thing is we didn't actually split up. You, um, did, you didn't officially we, split we, up. No, I mean, we never said this is our last gig. We never had a big row. We never had an Everly Brothers punch up on stage or anything, you know. We just drifted into a kind of hiatus. And I confess that when the hiatus went on for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, my assumption was <laughs> we're not, <laughs> not going to do some but of course we did Gordon and I got back together after 38 years thanks to Paul Schaefer thanks to Paul Schaefer but to go back to where you where you were um where were you again oh yes that's when I went off and well, did you, other things I decided paths I wanted to be a record producer I knew that right I loved the process of making records from the day we first went in the studio and uh, so I did and I I that's a career I deliberately went after. Mm-hmm. And, and you were sort of like at one point not as excited about performing yeah. as you are about being in the creative process. Yes. Well, performing then was very different too. I mean, we had fun. We had a great time. But it's like, you know, you probably saw it eight days a week. And the, when the Beatles... It's great, went, by the way. Is, yeah, it's terrific. recommended. Oh, yeah, terrific. Um, Ron Howard's a, a, a great friend and a brilliant filmmaker. And... Um, and uh, but so you know, 
you couldn't hear yourself. You couldn't. They couldn't hear you really. Sure. I mean, it was an experience. But it, music now, it's great. You know, the technology's changed everything. People forget they were singing through the PA system when you, they would the play arenas. Monitors in those didn't days. exist. Yeah, you know, the, the, the word monitor didn't exist. There were jobs that we have now that didn't exist. Front of house mixer didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Guitar tech didn't exist. I mean, no all that stuff. And monitor makes it no no monitors. You were using whatever PA was in the building, including like the, the same thing they announced the score over was what you. Wait, were so saying. when they play Candlestick. Park. Yeah. That's what they're singing. It's crazy. Yeah. And then you just had big amps on stage. Nothing was mic except the vocals. It was crazy. So you couldn't hear yourself. You couldn't hear anything. They couldn't hear you. It was kind of annoying. And and I I loved the studio, you know, completely. So I decided I wanted to, and then got lucky enough to find an artist I believed in. That's when I became a manager as well. And, and you said that in, in an interview that how much it's changed being on the road. Completely, yes. What are the changes? Well, as I say, some of it is the technology. Some of it's the fact that it's it's organized now. It was chaotic then. I mean, everyone was making it up as they went along. I mean, there's there are aspects of it that have maybe become too corporate and too organized on a grand scale, you know, with crazy three hundred dollar ticket prices and you know um, all that stuff. It's just got very elaborate now. But um, you know, so there's, there's a certain homemadeness that one misses but there's no question that when you go to a show now you expect to be able to hear everything and see everything and get a real production and you do sure. and it's great and it's exciting you know so it's it's changed radically it's stunning to think that this even pod- on our level even when i play clubs you know i still go out and i do a, a memoir show thing with a band right and, and then i've lately been doing a bunch of gigs with albert lee a genius guitar player absolutely you know and who played with uh, the everly brothers who played with the everly brothers my sure. brothers and emmy lou harris for years sure. and all that stuff but even for us it's completely different. I mean, we can hear ourselves. The audience can hear everything perfectly. You know, you can really make a show sound good. Your guitars sound like real guitars. And back then, there was no that none of that existed. And I think the Beatles were getting tired of that, not completely. being able to hear themselves. Completely. I mean, Ringo says he, it was only by watching the, their behinds, the the ba- their whole backs and movement, that he knew what song they were doing. <laughs> right. I mean, right. a combination of, of of bad tech and and screaming. Yeah, exactly. Combination fans. of bad tech and screaming fans. Right. I right. mean, that scene in Eight Days a Week when Ringo comes out and he's trying to stop the drum oh, riser falling over before he climbs yeah, on it. And it's fascinating. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, I remember we had one guy on the road, you know, doing everything, and I was kind of when we toured with the Beatles, I went, "Well, this will be different." They had two, <laughs> you know. But now a band like the Beatles would have a hundred, you know, of people course. and semis, and you know. It, it, the change is beyond measure. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. So you went your separate ways. Paul asked you to take a job at Apple. Yes. And you, you went into A&R. Yep. And you were scouting talent. He started off saying, would you produce some records for Apple? Because he was aware of my production work. Indeed, sure. he played on a couple of things that I had produced. So he'd watch me at work. And and I said yes. And then he said, well, why don't you be head of A&R for the label? And jumped at it. Yes. And and Mr. Taylor and Mr. came Taylor into your life. Came into my or life. Danny Korchmar? Yes. Danny Korchmar had been in a... You know, we used to get assigned a band to back us up on different legs of a tour in America. I mean, admittedly, you only had to work up 20 minutes of songs, so, but the bands varied a great deal in quality. And But Danny was in a good band called The Flight, called um, uh, The King Bees, and uh, they backed us up on two tours, I think, and Danny and I became great friends in that time. Then he was subsequently, some years later, in this band, The Flying Machine, with his childhood friend, James Taylor. They'd grown up on the vineyard together. And, and um, 
So that band was in New York and having a hard time and a couple of them were strung out and broke and this, that and the other. And the band broke up and James decided he would go to London. He had a girlfriend he thought he could stay with in London. Danny gave him my phone number. Just said, you know, here's a friend of mine in London. If you're going to be there, give him a call. So he called me up out of the blue and came over. And what did you hear? Which which song? Would you... uh, something in the way she moves. Something's wrong. Knocking around the zoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Caroline in my mind. He wrote that a few months later. Uh, that was probably uh, Soak Around the Sun. Not sure what else. But you and knew. You knew straight away. I was knocked out. I mean, it, 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 everything. I mean, he had played the guitar brilliantly, this finger-picking style that obviously had something to classical playing. He'd been listening to Segovia and Julian Bream and stuff and not just, you know, folkies. Um, plus, he, But then he was using these kind of jazzy Manhattan's records kind of chords, but singing with this beautiful folky tenor. And, of course... Back in that era, the term singer-songwriter hadn't been invented. If you had long hair and played the guitar, you were a folk singer. That's didn't it. matter if you never sang a folk song. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> if, you, if you wrote every song you played, you were still a folk singer. And, and that, was the, that was what he was. But um, I'd never heard anything that good. And I, on, it, we had this strange conversation that really was kind of, I said, look, I've got this new job. I'm head of A&R for a new record label. Would you like a record deal? And he said, yes, I'd love one. And... and so within two days, I had him in the office meeting the Beatles and signing up. And they responded too? Mm. They, they they loved it too. I played them something the way she moves in particular, and they all agreed. And what's not to like? What's not to like? And so we signed. He was the first artist signed to Apple. And that, that gets us back to another subject we brought up on this show. Which is? Songs that mention other songs in them. Well, I believe, and I'm, I, I hope this isn't bad information too, but that something in the way she moves in, in some way inspired George. Well, we have to assume so. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, George certainly heard it and liked it. Right. And then wrote a song with oddly similar lyrics. Yeah. Um, but James, in response to that, when people say, how do you feel, you, you know, did George adopt your phrase? The answer is that in that song, there's, James keeps putting in, I feel fine, which he said he thought of because oh, the Beatles wow. wrote Oh, wow. That's know, great stuff. She's around <laughs> me now and I feel fine. Right. When he says, holy host of others standing around me, That's too, he's referring yeah. to the Beatles. Yes. That's cool. Yes. That's been Caroline in my mind. Yes. That's pretty cool, too. Yeah, I he just wrote learned that. that. After heard... he, he wrote, that's what I mean. He wrote that. It was after he'd met them. We'd signed to Apple. He went away for a week or two of holiday to Ibiza, and that's where he wrote Carolina. It's great. I'll tell, I'll tell you. I've, I've seen interviews and listened to interviews with, with James Taylor <clears throat> recently. Yeah. He gives you a lot of credit for being for being the person that that believed in him. I did. I mean, because essentially, when I when we moved to America, I, you know, neither of us had any money. I was betting my career on on his. I dropped him off on the East Coast for a bit of rehab. He was in the mood for it at the time, and I then went out to California and made a record deal. And you're looking back at those people, I mean, the, and the people that you assembled. I mean, Danny, uh, Randy Meisner, Carol King, Russ Kunkel. No, hold on. That's that's not the Apple album. No, no, I mean later on. Oh, the Sweet Baby James. Yeah, Sweet Baby yeah, James. Yeah. Well, what, they, they, I mean, they were very distinct because the Apple album was just people in London. So, you know, Paul played on it. But but other than that, we had to put a little band together of English musicians. Right, I jumped. I split, I, I split when you went to L.A. Right. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry, but I thought you said, yeah, my mistake. But then when we got to L.A., uh, I decided to make the album much simpler and I wanted to put a band together. By this time, I'd heard the demos Carol King had done of all the great songs she wrote, you know, the demo of, you know, up on the roof or sure. whatever. And and I loved her piano playing. So when Danny Kortschmeier introduced me to Carol, I said, would you consider just being the pianist on this project I'm doing? And she came over to my house where James was staying and they met and sat down and played together. And Russ Kunkel had never been in the studio before. He'd, wow. I'd, I heard him in a John Stewart rehearsal 
John Stewart, Stewart used to be in the Kingston, Kingston Trio. Kingston Trio, yeah. Um, and uh, I loved the way he played. He was the first person I'd heard who clearly hadn't been listening to Hal Blaine, but to Ringo, you know what I mean? A whole other kind of drum fill. And so I hired him to do those sessions. And but, how did you find Linda Ronstadt? Um, somebody, I was in New York, and somebody said, you have to go and see this girl. I don't remember who it was. have to go and see this girl playing at the bitter end. She's amazing. She's got the greatest voice you ever heard in your life. She's she's brilliant and she's unbelievably beautiful and she sings barefoot and she's and you know it was all true and and uh, i went there and met her afterwards and and we didn't actually start working together right away because i just started working with kate taylor james's sister and i thought managing two women might be complicated but but in the end kate decided to take some time off and at that point linda and i got together and i started managing her and and producing it. And the first album I, I produced with Linda, she'd done a couple of other ones, but I produced them um, Hot Like a Wheel. And and the thing that eventually had her stop performing, Linda Ronstadt. Well, she has Parkinson's. Yeah. 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 How's she doing, by the way? She's, I mean, as well as anyone with a very unpleasant disease can be doing. She's, of course. She's fine, you know. She she always worries about her brain, you know, because she goes, I can feel my brain turning to Swiss cheese. But but she's so brilliant. She's one of the most smartest women I've ever met. Incredibly well-read. and Best and, girl and singer clever. you ever heard in your life, I've heard she you is. say. It's, it's, it's amazing that those two things would apply to the same person, but they do. Yeah. She's, she's um, no reason they shouldn't, but it's, you know, very fortunate when someone's an amazingly good singer and and is incredibly smart and well-read and fascinating so i've i've treasure her as a singer and as a friend but yes so parkinson stopped her singing and you know she she can walk a bit and stuff but it's it's a it's a very annoying disease we're fans here yeah. and those oh, albums she's pr- the greatest prisoner in disguise heart like a wheel i mean uh, simple dreams uh, living in the usa they're wonderful records thank you very much and if our listeners we have about a million people now a month listening to the show Wow. If our listeners do not know these albums, by all means, run out and get them. Absolutely. And she's also the James Taylor. One of the, she's one of the greatest interpreters of songs because she's not a songwriter, you know. And she, but she, she herself. I mean, I didn't know about Warren Zevon until she came to me and said, "We're going to do several songs by right. this brilliant guy." And she was right. Well, all those songs, the Garrigal Sisters, she rescued Elvis Costello. Elvis. She does Allison. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. And, and then Elvis was incredibly rude about it, but she subsequently. Apologize. Oh, interesting. Oh, what? How was he rude about it? Oh, because you know he had to be. He was a punk, and and so you know, <laughs> so he you know he, he did a Rolling Stone interview when he kind of derided Linda's version as you know awful. Meanwhile, of course, it made him more money than he'd ever made in his life so far because it was a big hit. Well, but but he did. I I love Elvis very much. We we become friends, and and he totally acknowledges that he was being a bit of a deliberate. Punk. Well, also this, in, the, in the musical sense. That's that's <laughs> funny. I'm glad he apologized. The, Wait, yeah, the songwriting. I mean, not just Zevon and Elvis Costello, but I mean the, that you guys were picking, you know, Stones covers, Orbison, Buddy yes. Holly. I mean, you went to the best places. We did. I mean, Belinda and I were fans of a lot of the same people, and and so we we did that. Yes, it was fun. I love when I grow too old to dream. Which on uh, on living in the USA, I don't know which one of you decided to pick that one, but it's. It is. That is an absolutely. I think that was Linda. I think. Stunning I'm not song. sure. Generally, it's, I, I'm the one usually picking some of the rock and roll ones because Linda would make an all slow album give, given the choice. She likes singing slow songs, and of course, when we did the Nelson Riddle albums, which was completely her idea, not mine. I I it supported her in it, but I didn't think they would be successful. And, of course, they did unbelievably well. They're great records. The first one sold three or four million, more than her preceding rock and roll albums. And and working with Nelson was a a thrill to us. I owe Linda a huge debt of gratitude for that. 
My hat's off. Those records are wonderful. And, and, and Elvis Costello since then, of course, has become a hero of mine. He's one of the best songwriters in America. He's, and he's our friend brilliant. Jimmy Webb turns up twice. And Jimmy on, Webb. On Get Closer. <laughs> yes, he does. And then we did that Cry Like a Rainstorm, How Like a Wind album. That's right. We did right. What, three Jimmy Webb tunes, I think. Adios and... Gosh. I can't. I can't. I, I, I know the moon is the heart's mistress. moon is the heart's mistress. mistress. That, yeah. That's a great song. Yeah. No, Jimmy's amazing. There's nobody like him. And great how here. did you get involved with uh, Robin Williams and Steve Martin? Uh, quite differently. Uh, Robin, I think I met through my wife, who was knew Robin. Uh, my wife, Wendy, knew Robin before I did. And uh, so we met and hit it off and became great friends, and we would hang out together a lot. And, and when he was talking about, filming and recording the tour um i had some ideas about how we you know we could make a record that would be a different thing than than what the the dvd of one show you know the dvd was the hbo show essentially but for the album we recorded every show and took all the best bits and and he also would do different bits every night about the city he was in so we had a separate cd with all those put together so um i you know i, I was explaining to him what i thought he could do and he said you know why don't you produce it and come with us on the road and i said Yes, please. My Robin and his, and his wife, Marsha, um, who, who helped very much put that together. How, did, how does one produce a comedy album? Well, in this case, it was it really was a question of note-taking primarily, uh-huh. making, remembering where all the best bits were. You guys so, won a Grammy. You won Grammys. We did. We won a Grammy. Yeah. Uh, we won Best Comedy Album, not one I counted on winning. And, uh, <laughs> Congratulations. And then Steve Martin was different because um, Steve also is a, is a friend, and I was having dinner with him here in New York, and... He was telling me about this stuff that he was working out with Edie Brickell. He'd written some banjo melodies. He'd given them to her. She'd written these amazing songs kind of on top of them. Not, We thought, he thought that she was just going to put lyrics to the banjo melody instead of which she wrote a whole counter melody. We were brilliant. And I heard those over dinner at Steve's house. And again, we were talking about, I said, you know, these are really good. You should make an album. And here's how I think you could do it. So it wasn't strictly a bluegrass album, but make it a little more adventurous than that. Put some other instruments in it and real strings and not just a fiddle and and so on so and the same thing kind of happened i was actually on the plane home the next day that steve emailed me on the plane and said do you want to produce the record um and i said yes so basically i'm always out hustling for work you are, <laughs> <laughs> that's what it comes down to you're the busiest person but, we've ever had on the show i was looking so at your website i did those two Stephen and Edie albums and then mm-hmm. of course they turned that into a broadway show um, Bright Star, which is right, a terrific right. show, which ran on Broadway for a while, not long enough to officially be a hit, but we did a hundred and some shows. So, it was, and it's opening in L.A. Uh, this fall at the Amundsen, and I so I was music supervisor for the show, and then I produced the cast album, which we were nominated for Tonys and Grammys and all that stuff, um, which was exciting. So you have your funny. hands in everything. You're I do. Also, I I work with Hans Zimmer a lot. Yeah, too. you're doing movie music. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, yeah, I, I like to keep busy. I'm not going to take up golf and move to Florida or anything in the <laughs> couple of, just a couple of last questions Peter we sure. know you, we know you got to go and you've been you've been such a, a sport oh it's a pleasure and full and just filled with information I, I in addition to recommending those those Ronstadt albums uh, I'm going to tell our listeners too to get those James Taylor albums for God's sake I mean they're wonderful Gorilla JT in the pocket Walking Man they're all wonderful and everybody, you get to hear everybody on them. I mean, Paul and Linda McCartney show up. Art Garfunkel's on there. Yep. This is, David Crosby, Graham Nash, everybody. Yep, it's true. It's true. It's true. And I will also pl- I will plug my shows with Albert if I may. Please we're, do. We're doing a with bunch Albert of shows uh, with Albert Lee here on the west on the east coast, um, starting with the Cutting Room this Sunday. But but um, uh, yeah, do come if you can. And celebrity biography. And I'm doing the celebrity biography thing, which is which, which is a is great show. Keeping my acting career. 
going. Um, <laughs> uh, because that's, you know, I've actually, my tinker does, does every now and then pop up again. I did a, um, a film, I had a small role in a film called Doris and Bernard. I don't know if anybody saw it. No, who's H- in that? It was an HBO movie. Okay. Um, my friend Bob Balaban. Oh, I'm yes. A, who I'm actually having dinner with tonight. Oh. Um, directed it. And, um, and there I am again, hustling for work. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and We're big fans of and this. And they did this great movie about D- Doris Duke. You know, um, Susan Sarandon played Doris Duke, and Ray Fiennes played the butler, who has this peculiar, confusing relationship with her throughout the whole movie. In order for Ray Fiennes to get the job, the old butler has to get fired. So I was the old butler in pages one, two, and three, give, serving Susan Sarandon her, her watermelon at the wrong temperature for breakfast and getting fired. Yeah, I was just... I was <laughs> So without me, without me, Ray Fiennes couldn't have got anywhere. So. And you were in the Ruttles movie, I'd also like to point I'm out. I'm in the second Ruttles movie, yes. The second yes, one. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. yes, Eric Idle's a dear friend yeah. and a genius. And the great Neil Innes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and Neil Innes, absolutely. So we, we have to ask you this real quick. Yeah. Uh, Gil, you have anything else? Uh, no. If we let this man get on with his life, yeah. and maybe he'll take us out. He'll be kind enough to take us out with a song. First of all, Faust, the Randy Newman project, is another masterpiece. Oh, so thank you. you have my, my uh Thank you, that was fun to admiration. do. My admiration. That was fun to do. We had James Taylor... Um, Oh, Elton, a, Elton's on there. Don, Don Henley, Elton yeah, John, yeah. Linda Ronset, Bonnie Ray. Everybody, get Incredible. that one, too. Yeah, that's a good yeah. one. So, and w- just the last thing, this is, w- that's the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper, so we'd be remiss in not just asking you about it. I mean, even if it's just... What well, was your- I, I remember visiting the studio a couple of times, so I'd heard little bits, but not much. I mean, I wasn't in the studio hardly at all. I mean, people... Oh, I think if everyone who says they were at a Beatles session was actually there, it would have been as big as the Albert Hall. But the, <laughs> the, um, uh, but what I did do was hear the whole thing when it was finished. I remember distinctly when Paul brought home a, a, a metal lacquer. You know, they just assembled it all and put it together for the first time, and played it. It was just in our dining room at home, on an ordinary old record player, you know, the kind with a lid, and um, and uh, it sounded amazing. Just the the mono lacquer straight from the studio, and I was blown away. And they, I realized that albums were never going to be the same. Never going to be the they same. They were talking about that, uh, I think, on PBS recently, <clears throat> the making of Sergeant Pepper. There was a great special on PBS. Yes. Wonderful. Yep. With yep. a musicologist. Yes. Who yep. really takes you through the... Like how impossible now, it working. was to do that then. Yeah, because it was all four-track. I mean, the technology was fascinating. I could go on about that for hours, too. But, yeah, no, that's an issue. I've been working with Apple records you know that apple quite a bit lately indeed i also have a radio show now tell us about that i have a radio show every every thursday night at 8 p.m on the sirius xm on the new beatles channel they gave me a uh, asked me if i could do an hour show once a week and i get to play pretty much whatever i want because it's supposed to be beatle related right of course once you include everything that influenced the beatles and everyone they influenced that's (laughs) That's a a wide net that's everybody right so right so i tell i try to like this tell a story a thread that goes through it all and uh and and you know include some 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 cool music that people might not have heard. And I heard that's Thursday nights at eight. Thursday Eastern. nights at eight. On what? Where do they? Where can they get that? Sirius XM. Sirius XM on the Beatles channel. Okay, that's great. Now I'm going to listen to that for yeah. sure. Go ahead. Gil. No, I had just heard that the Beatles they had like sort of a rivalry, creative rivalry with the Beach Boys. Yes, they did. I mean, they both. I think they both realized. I can't remember what the order is anymore, but was it Sergeant Pepper Pets, then? Pet Sounds. Then Pet Sounds. I or the other no, way I think Pet Sounds came out when the Beatles heard I think that. Pet Sounds is first, but yeah, maybe so. So yeah, yeah they, what, what, one way or the other, you know, Pet Sounds maybe inspired Sergeant Pepper, and then these boys, you know, but I think it was definitely a case of somebody doing something brilliant, and their big rivals going, 
oh shit, you know, how, how are we going to beat that? And so, you know, and it was an amiable musical competition. Absolutely. Uh, and just, you know, everyone trying to be better than everybody else, which is what show business is yeah, all about. I think McCartney had heard pitch sounds. You could and be he right. Couldn't believe it. Yeah, I I don't remember that specifically as a as an experience of mine, but certainly I know that would took place, and we've all read about it. And the last thing I want to ask you, and we'll get to the mm-hmm. we'll, we'll throw the plugs in again at the end. But did, and you've been asked this before. Did you did you know that this music was going to have the permanence that it's had, the the lasting effect that it's had? Was there any way to know? No, I don't think I didn't really think about it. I mean. As I say, the perception at the time was being a pop star is, is, is an extremely short, ephemeral career. Because mm-hmm. um, nobody took the music seriously. The record company certainly didn't. I mean, EMI looked down their noses at it. You know, they took their classical music seriously sure. and their, their radar business seriously more than pop music. But um, no, and that's why, you know, when that the Times of London music critic wrote that... It, you know, life-changing review of the Beatles where he, he took the music seriously and reviewed it as music and said it was brilliant. And that was kind of the beginning of a, a total change of attitude. And now classical musicians, jazz musicians, and rock and roll musicians are, are all thought of in their respective fields as equals. And But before that, you know, the jazz guys and the classical guys looked down their noses at everything pop. Um, as if they, as if, oh, I could do that if I wanted to, do, but of course they couldn't. Right. You know. Right. Right. They're, they're, they're each of them are very particular arts, and now pop music's given the respect it's due. Great. We know you got to fly. Do you have time to do one more with him? Um, sure. Seventeen, <laughs> <laughs> a beauty queen. She made a ride that caused a scene. Her long blonde hair. Down around her knees, all the cats who did strip tease, praying for a little breeze. Her long blonde hair falling down across her arms, hiding all the ladies' charms. Hey, 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 take it away. There you go. Lady Godiva, she found fame and made her name. A Hollywood director came into town, came into town <laughs> and said to her, How'd you like to be a star? You're a girl who could go far, especially dressed the way you are. She smiled at him, gave her pretty head a shake. That was Lady G's mistake. Hey, 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 take it away. Lady Godiva. <laughs> he directs Certificate X. X. And people, people now are craning in ecstasy her. Cause she's a star. One that everybody knows. Finished with the scripty shows. Now she can't afford her
can die now. <laughs> Terrific. Very good. Peter, thank you. Oh, never, so never sounded better. Much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Give us the plugs thank again. You. If you look on peterashermusic.com, there's a whole itinerary. Where we'll send people. Come that- to a show if you can. Because the nice thing about playing small places, I get to say hello to everyone afterwards and hang out and stuff. So do come and say hi. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to put up to the video that our friends have just been taking here. And we'll put it up on social media tonight just to get. Absolutely. That should be deeply embarrassing. Yes. Tall. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. And we've been here talking to uh, my fellow Menza graduate, <laughs> Peter Asher. I doubt that. <laughs> Peter, this was a treat. Thank, Thank you very much. You are someone we could talk to for seven hours. Oh, yes. I, I, I won't you. I can go on forever. Thank, Thank you me. for doing this. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, pal. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. I tell my arms inside